In September, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and other federal agencies proposed changes to the common rule, the regulations that govern the ethical conduct of research involving humans. The goal of the revisions is to improve safeguards for certain research participants and to make conducting research more efficient. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Alex Capron, a professor of law and medicine at the University of Southern California Keck School of Medicine. Professor Cabron, in a perspective article, Hudson and Collins write that in addition to advances in scientific knowledge and technology, society has recently undergone tremendous shifts that are highly relevant to the conduct of research. Are there specific cases that highlight the need for these changes to the common rule? I don't think they actually cite such cases. The main example that people focus on was the decision of some German researchers who had obtained the HeLa cells, as everybody in research in the world has, and decided to sequence some of them and publish the sequence. And that case underlined the issue of confidentiality about identifiable biospecimens. In the case of the HeLa cells, of course, it is now known to everyone that those came from Henrietta Lacks. And the researchers responded to NIH's concern by withdrawing the publication, taking it offline, and then NIH established a review process with the Lacks family. And I suppose that's a case that illustrates the kinds of risks that biospecimens pose, but it really is a rather extreme example And it's probably interesting that other than voluntary disclosures by people like Craig Venter, who famously put his own genome up online, most of the research that is done with biospecimens has not led to unauthorized disclosures and identifiable information being publicized. So overall, the central aim of the revisions is said to be to enhance safeguards for research participants and to increase research efficiency. Do you think that the proposed changes will achieve those goals, or do you think they could be strengthened? There's no question that if you define efficiency as simply having more studies ready to begin more quickly, the rules will achieve that, mostly because there are now large numbers of studies that some institutions feel need review that are defined as not involving research. I personally think that a number of those categories deserve to be removed from the category of research with human subjects subject to the common rule. So I think that's a good change. There is also the exemption from the continuing review of studies that have been expedited that puts them in the same category with other studies that previously required no continuing review So that will get things moving faster and reduce the administrative burden. About two decades ago, President Clinton's National Bioethics Advisory Commission did its work on which I served, as did Zeke Emanuel, who has been really one of the driving forces behind getting these changes proposed. We took the view that IRBs could do their work more productively if they were focused on the research in greatest need of review, and usually that's identified with the amount of risk. I think in the NBAC discussions, we were clear that risk is more than physical risk. I think the regulations tend to put the emphasis on the physical risk, in part because people in behavioral and social science have been so unhappy with having to go through the review and have argued that it is unnecessary. 
And there are certainly, in the category of behavioral and social science studies, many that would be very low risk. And if those can be reviewed more quickly or not reviewed and be exempted entirely, that would move things along. There are other aspects of the proposed rule that I think may undermine its ability to achieve its efficiency goal. And among those are the requirement for all multi-center studies that they be reviewed by a single IRB and the requirement that all biospecimens have a broad consent given at the time that they're collected if they are going to be used in research and then mandates institutions to have a way of making sure that that consent is linked with the biospecimen and the resulting data in a way that would allow access for research studies with it only in the cases where the consent has been given. Moreover, since it's a time-limited consent, that also has to be tracked. And the apparatus to make all that work is going to, for many institutions, be a major drag. And I suspect for some smaller community-based institutions, clinics or non-teaching hospitals, smaller hospitals, much less individual physicians' practices, the associated burdens and complications would be too great. One final concern that cuts against the efficiency is also a realistic understanding of what it would mean to get broad consent. Anybody who has been into a hospital or other healthcare facility knows that the first person you meet is a clerk who has a large stack of forms one has to sign. And many of the forms contain a lot of information. Some of it would certainly raise questions with anyone who actually read the forms and thought about them. If we're serious about broad consent for the use of biospecimens in research, if we think that there is really something that needs to engage the patient in a thoughtful way, and since it is likely that that's where it's going to be offered to them, we really have a disconnect. And I think that the result will be either people saying, well, I have questions about this. Can you explain it? And the clerk saying no. And so if I can't answer your question, just say you don't want us to use the specimen, which would be rather counterproductive to the whole thrust and certainly counterproductive to the views that are in the article you mentioned by Kathy Hudson and Francis Collins. Or a complication of that admission process to the hospital where we have to have a group of people prepared to step in and sit down with someone and talk to them about why consent is looked for, what it means to agree, what will be done, the fact that we don't know the kinds of studies that will be done, and these are the kinds of assurances we can offer, but there could be things that would be upsetting to someone, and are they willing to go ahead under that basis, what relationship it has to do with their care, and so forth. And so the picture that the NPRM paints that it is aiming with a whole lot of changes to make things, quote, more efficient, which means simply quicker and less burdensome, doesn't take account, I think, of some of the legitimate issues as to which we have no answers. In other words, it's a matter of saying these are concerns, but we don't have the data on which a person trying to make an evidence-based rule 
would want to have before making this a uniform rule across all settings. And so I think that there is a tension. There's some easy things that are being done, probably quite uncontroversial, and there are other things that may, in fact, increase the burden substantially or interfere with the gathering of specimens from a very broad base of the public, which is the whole purpose of having repositories with those specimens, that we have a non-biased sample from which to conduct research. So to follow up on a couple of the points you raise, first, the issue of matching the level of oversight to the level of risk. In the proposed rule, do you think those risk levels are clear-cut, or is it going to be a question of someone making decisions about how much oversight is required study by study? There is an attempt to make them clear-cut, but in fact, one always has to have judgment. And one of the issues that arises in all of this is I think we are putting more of that responsibility on the shoulders of investigators. And for a long time, we have recognized that we don't do a great job of educating physicians about those issues so that when they become investigators, they can be prepared to take them on in a responsible way. And there will be a list published, an attempt to identify what are the low-risk studies and so forth. I suspect that the fact that it hasn't been released, the version that will be available supposedly, and that along with other things that haven't been released, is indicative that that's going to be a process that is difficult to come up with, get a broad agreement across federal agencies and with the affected scientific community as to which things are risky and not. We usually think of risk as something that exists within a context and that in medical settings, where we sometimes talk about extraordinary means or the like, we recognize that in one setting something's extraordinary, and in another one it's not. It depends upon the context and the patient and so forth. And the same is true in a lot of areas, even in something that's not physical. I mean, asking certain questions in certain populations is more problematic than in others. In populations where there are different views about sexuality or abortion, different views about privacy, different views about what men and women can talk about with people outside their family and so forth. So the notion that we can have outside of a particularized review a list that this says, well, these are low risk and they don't really need a review at all, they're exempted, is, I think, going to turn out to be very problematic. What's the next step for HHS? Do you see the proposed changes being adopted? And if so, how quickly will they be implemented? You would have to ask the people in the Assistant Secretary's office and obviously in OHRP what's going to happen. The word on the street is that there is, as to a wide range of rules that are in various processes of development, a lot of pressure to get these things out by the end of the summer so that they can be out there long enough before the election that they don't get swept up into the election debate itself, and yet also don't drag on so that there is an attempt to do them in November and December where there would be a lot of resistance to an outgoing administration putting in a lot of new rules. So the 
Department has just announced a one-month extension in the comment period. This is a gigantic 500-page document. I think a lot of people looking at it say it is not ready to be a rule at all. In many ways, looking at the document, if you didn't see the cover sheet, you would think this is an advance notice of proposed rulemaking because it has 88 questions in it that either indicates that there is a lot of internal division or at least that there's a recognition that a lot of the questions that the rule addresses are matters on which there's considerable lack of information or actual dispute about the meaning of what we do know. The commentaries in the New England Journal indicate that people who are very committed to the rule would like to have it go forward anyway. Certainly, the view expressed by Zeke Emanuel, which I expect is held by many people within the relevant offices there, is that we shouldn't hold out for the best possible rule. Don't let the ideal be the enemy of the good here. There's another conclusion that you can draw from the difficulties that we've had in revising the rule, and that would be that instead of trying to do a sweeping revision of the entire document at once, we ought instead to be addressing particular issues where there are identified problems one by one. That doesn't mean we're only dealing with a particular subparagraph of the rule. Some things cut across many parts. The issue, for example, of whether there is need for greater clarity along the boundary of research. Certainly institutions had concerns that activities such as quality improvement activities within institutional settings where you are looking at the way in which you deliver care and trying out a different method, but of course keeping very close track of that and developing information, often detailed information, and then in the end perhaps even sharing that information if it yields a particular interest to others might be called research or it might just be called part of responsible delivery of care. Those kinds of issues could be addressed. That's one particular one. The whole biospecimen issue, likewise, is an issue that could be addressed. And you can go through each of those and say, well, if we focused on that and if we had a process that was not, as this process has been, 2011, an advance notice, public comments, and then four more years go by, and then a notice of proposed rulemaking, 90, now 120 days to comment, and then back behind the closed doors. The process could be one which makes better use of the existing advisory structure, which is subject to the Federal Advisory Committees Act, and that is open, and discussions can be held on the specific changes and debated, and then proposals put forward, and then further refined, and so forth. And that sort of incremental change where we would focus the attention of the research community, and if necessary, identify information that needs to be gathered. There is just an article in the November 6th issue of Science, for example, from researchers at Johns Hopkins, identifying that we have large gaps in the evidence about the efficacy and feasibility of using central review for multi-center studies. We could say, here's the need. Let's put that on the shelf. Let's do the research and see what's really involved. 
what are the trade-offs in terms of efficiency, what are the trade-offs in terms of ethical sensitivity and so forth, and have that data and then put forward a proposal. All of that would be a different approach. So I think it's not a matter of saying, if this rule isn't perfect, we should throw it out. But we might say, is there procedurally a different way of improving the existing common rule step-by-step since this comprehensive method is so problematic as indicated by the nature of this rule, which doesn't look like any other proposed rule I've ever seen. Most proposed rules are very close to being finished when they're published as an NPRM. And the comments from the relevant communities in each case may be very pointed, but they're directed at particular language about which there's already been adequate examination and the agency has given its reasons and wants to see, is there any counter-argument we haven't considered? That's not the nature here. The agency is asking this whole raft of questions. There's great uncertainty. Thank you, Professor Capron.